Let's read our text from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, where Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you as your children, adopted into your family because of the work that has been performed for us by Christ on the cross. We thank you for the gospel and we pray to you because of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus lived for us, that he died for us, He was raised for us so that we can pray to you just like this. And so that Paul could pray this prayer for us, your church. It is a great honor to be your people. We come this morning to feed on your word and the gospel in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, How absurd would it be for a family to gather for a holiday meal? To spend the morning preparing that meal, the rolls, the salad, the steak, or turkey, or chicken, preparing the condiments, and then to sit down at the table to look at the spread and to have a conversation about the food, to note its colors, the care with which it was prepared, and to note its smells. And then to get up from the table, having never taken a bite. That would be absurd. Obviously, because food is meant for enjoyment. And that table prepared of food was meant for enjoyment. How much more absurd would it be if that same family got up and left the table, food's still there, later in the day, speaks of fatigue and a difficulty in completing the day's tasks in overcoming some of the, uh, just the daily tasks of life and responsibilities. Well, that would be absurd as well, because food is meant for nourishment, for strengthening the body to finish the day and to live. Well, when we are not fervent and regular in prayer, we are, we are that absurd family. All of us would want to pray more, for sure, can tell that the gospel is preached here with clarity and, cl- and with clarity and fervency, and that this is a people that believes the Bible. It's an honor to be with you. And as God has given us his spirit, he's made us receptive to this word. So I trust that the Lord has made me and all of us here curious and eager to model what the Apostle Paul does here in praying for the Ephesian church, in praying for our own church, and this church here at Desert Springs. Because prayer is as natural for the believing Christian, the one who believes the gospel, the church that believes the gospel, 
as eating is to sitting before a a prepared meal. And it is necessary to the Christian life, as necessary to the Christian life as eating is to the physical life. It's what strengthens us for what we're called to do and be as Christians. Well, the book of Ephesians is a letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. And this is, this is a book that does not have an obvious or specific occasion. Some of Paul's letters, there's something he's going after. An alarm bell has gone off. He's addressing an issue. He's doing a number of things in his letters, but there's something that he's going after. There's something that has given him uh, alarm, and he's writing to address that issue. In this case, there's no specific occasion except the occasion of being the church between the comings of Christ. We live in this present darkness, Paul will describe the world we live in. He tells them to put on the full armor of God. We're in a spiritual battle. There are powers that we are battling by the power of the Spirit to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in this life and the church to stay pure and faithful to the gospel. And we need this letter now, just like the Ephesian church needed this letter, even though there was no specific occasion for alarm. And so we'll all listen carefully, won't we? The book of Ephesians is a marvelous book. It has two halves. The first half, chapters 1 through 3, are doctrine, an exposition of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, all that God has done for sinners and for his people in the gospel. The second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, are all about who the people of God are to be. It is full of commands. Full of commands. If you read this book, keep that in mind. One through three, the gospel and what is true of us in Christ. Four through six, who we are to be in Christ. And this prayer falls at a very strategic point in this letter. Notice at the end of chapter three, right in the middle of the book. And that will, that will uh, I think that's significant. Its relationship to both sides of the book is significant. So two halves of the book. And it falls at a strategic point. If the first half, if the gospel is the meal, then prayer is the tasting, the chewing, and the digesting that empowers us to live consistent with the doctrine and the gospel we profess and embrace together as God's people. Well, Paul's prayer here not only instructs us that we should be a people about praying, but also in what we should pray for. John Stott has a great quote, I'd like to read it for you. Addressing this, he says, one of the best ways to discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers, the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about what concerns us and are evidently not concerned about matters we do not include in our prayers. Oh, that is true, isn't it? When you think about it. I mean, at the end of the day, we pray about what we really, really care about. We find out what we care about when we listen to ourselves pray. I think that's a helpful quote. Well, as we look at Jesus' praying in the Gospels, specifically in thinking of his prayer at a moment of great uh, significance, certainly in his life, in Gethsemane, who did he pray for? What did he pray for? The subject of his prayer was the church. He prayed for his disciples and the church. Their unity, their purity, their protection from evil. 
the prayers in the New Testament. The apostles' prayers, specifically the Paul's prayers, are prayers for churches. And so we can and should be regular in prayer, certainly for ourselves and those we love, and for the people of God gathered at Desert Springs. So I pray, my hope is, as a result of our time in this text, that we would be more faithful in prayer, that we would be more faithful in prayer specifically for our church. And I think that time in this prayer will protect us against two pitfalls. If you take the book of Ephesians and you extract the prayer, loveless doctrine. Prayer, uh, sorry, loveless doctrine, a commitment. It's easy to... um, As the people of God, we're committed to the Bible. So we gather regularly to listen to the Bible, to read the Bible. We ought to be regular in reading the Bible on our own. But without the power of God's spirit that Paul prays for here to activate the truth of Scripture and the gospel in our hearts, the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, will be very difficult, if not impossible, without the Spirit's help, for sure. Loveless doctrine. loveless doctrine. Secondly would be doctrineless love. That's where we're a church gathered, committed to being nice to each other and getting along. Even being nice to the world, really nice to the world and loving our neighbors. But without a commitment to truth and a love without a commitment to truth itself is not really love at the end of the day, isn't it? So maybe we'd be, this would be a place where we could vigorously pursue moral standards, but without the gospel at the heart of our attempts to live Christianly and faithfully in obedience to commands, without an experience of the love of Christ, which Paul talks about here and prays for, the gospel isn't at the heart of that obedience, and so glory is denied to God in it. So maybe we'd be more faithful in prayer and more faithful in prayer for the church because we all need it so, so much. Three things we're going to define in this prayer. So you look at the prayer. We're going to look at the basis for Paul's prayer. We're going to look at the substance of his prayer. So what is the ground? What is the substance of his prayer? What is he praying for? The last question we'll answer is what is the manner of Paul's prayer? First, the substance. First, the basis of Paul's prayer. On the back of your bulletin, you've got three points. They all look the same. We'll make them look different. Pray for the church. One... Because of the gospel. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So why does Paul? For this reason he states the ground for the prayer, the basis for his prayer, right at the outset. And when he says that, he points us all the way back to everything that he has just written. In a sentence, the gospel is the reason that he's praying. It's what is moving him to prayer. This prayer comes at the end of three chapters like a climax, an explosion of prayer and praise to God for God's help and uh, to understand all that he has just said for the church. He's been made a minister of this gospel, and in the first three chapters, it's like he takes the diamond of the gospel and he spins it so that it shimmers. You don't have to understand All of the entailments of the gospel, certainly to be a Christian, there is a lot here. To trust Jesus by faith, that he is God's answer to our problem that we admit of sin and our great need of him and the problem of our um, 
deserving of God's wrath. God answers that in Christ. We trust him. And everything that we find in chapters 1 through 3 is, happens. God is doing it all. Well, in those chapters, it's as though he spins the diamond to show us all that is there so that our hearts will revel in it. He says, in summary, at the beginning of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the Christ with every spiritual blessing. Name one you don't have if you are in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will, Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. That refrain will show up three times in that chapter. To the praise of his glorious grace. He does these things to the honor, to the praise of his grace. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of God's grace, there it is again, which he's lavished on us. We were dead, chapter 2 says, in our trespasses and sins. We've been made alive in Christ. We were children of wrath, but now we are his masterpiece, new creations, created for good works. And he promises to show us, those who deserve his wrath, rebels in his world, his enemies even before Christ, he promises to show us the immeasurable riches of of his grace and kindness toward us for all eternity. And all that God has done is a part of his eternal purpose to unite all things in himself and to glorify himself. We are a part of that as his people, the church. And for this reason, Paul bows his knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth, gets its name. And it's for that reason that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we, this morning, pray. And it's for this reason that we pray for the church. And it's certainly for this reason that we can pray at all. If you look in the verses immediately before his prayer, verse 11, he's speaking of his calling as a minister of the gospel. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Which means, without faith in him, in Christ, and without Christ, and if God were not fixed on fulfilling his purpose to glorify himself in his church in Christ and had not drawn him to ourself, us to himself, we would not have boldness. And we would not have access. Our sins would have made a separation between us and our God, Isaiah says. And we would have no confidence to approach God, whether we try or not. Our our prayers, as it were, would hit the ceiling. He hears because he hears everything. But he could not hear like he hears his children. And so the gospel is the reason we pray. It's certainly the only reason we're able to pray. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden because they rebelled against their maker, and we participate together in Adam's sin as rebels, born sinners. The garden was guarded with flaming swords, but in Christ, God dwells in us by his spirit, and we can pray like this. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. He prays to the one who is sovereign over all, from whom every family on earth and in heaven gets its name. As one who says he was the chief of sinners, but now a child of God, not a child of wrath, but an adopted son, Paul prays, which means 
all of us, we should not be timid in prayer. We should not hope to get things together first before we go to God. To be nervous to come before Him or even ashamed. We must remember in prayer that God has taken all of our shame in Christ and He invites us to come and we can and He has made it possible for us to do so because of the gospel which is the basis of our prayers. Well, there are two pit, sorry, there are um, two things that we can avoid by making sure that our hearts are fixed on this gospel when we pray. First thing we ought to avoid in prayer is ever praying, for it would greatly offend the one we're praying to. Praying for God to do things that he's already done for us in Jesus. Which is to say, we do not pray to God in order to earn his favor. Or to make sure that we are praying so that God will like us. We go to God in prayer to enjoy his favor. We do not go to God in the hopes of being his children. We go to God because we are his children. Uh, when I, our children are home right now, well, we haven't left them home. We've had, we got our daughter in August, we got our son in February, and uh, we're going to date or out for an evening, babysitter, they get it. We left, I'm sure they thought we were coming back, it's been a couple days, I think they're doing okay. When we come home, I expect that my son will run to me, and freely so. And not because well, he hopes he can be my son, uh, that I'll like him. He prays because he knows that he's welcome in my arms, and that is the only place that he wants to be. He doesn't know that, I don't, he doesn't get the concept of adoption. He just knows that he belongs to his father, and so he runs. And so in prayer, we run to our father, and we do so because of the gospel. It's why we pray, and certainly why we pray for the church. Second thing we want to avoid in prayer, if the gospel is true, is, uh, well, it should be the case that our prayers don't sound like the prayers of people who don't believe this gospel. How much do we have to celebrate in prayer. Could it be that we would pray ever a blood-bought child of God pray and not mention Christ or the cross or the resurrection or at least one of the marvelous entailments of the gospel in the first couple chapters of this book that we were dead and that we're alive now, that we're adopted as sons, forgiven of our sins. These are things that we can, we don't have to say them all every time we pray, but we can always be turning our hearts back to the gospel and something of what it means that we are able to pray. In 2010, you can do just about anything on the internet. You can uh, learn things. You can buy things. You can sell things. You can learn how to do things. I was at work um, two weeks ago, and somehow submarines, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, somehow submarines came up in our conversation uh, Five minutes later, I go to my buddy's computer, and he's looking up submarines on eBay. Apparently, you can actually buy submarines on the Internet. Some guy's making them. I'm sure it's crazy expensive. Then you talk about who these people are that can buy submarines and make them. It's a fascinating thing. The Internet allows us to do a lot, even buy them. Prayer is something you can learn to do, apparently, as well, on the Internet. If you Google how to pray, you'll be directed to a website called WikiHow. WikiHow the how-to manual you can edit. Now, that is a helpful site. I would direct you to it. There are all kinds of things I don't know how to do, which WikiHow being a place where people are pooling their knowledge and expertise on sandwich making, car fixing, and all the rest would be a place where I could go to learn how to do something. But for the Christian, 
This is the place that we go, isn't it? And uh, Christian, as Christians, we do not believe that our praying is one of many ways to pray. We do not believe that there are many ways to pray, but a way to pray, there's talking to God and everything else is idolatry because it would mean that God, the God to whom we are praying, is of our own imagination. Here's the, the wiki article definition of praying. The term to pray is often used to refer to religious prayers, to commune with a spirit or deity that you believe in. It's something that hunter-gatherers, ancient Egyptians, and Greeks, and followers of today's major religions share in common. While the rituals and conventions of prayer may vary widely, the intention is the same, to renew one's spiritual connection with, with a power outside themselves. I think the last statement's probably true. If we define prayer sociologically, it's, you know, it, it's reaching out for something greater than ourselves. And we would expect exactly like this, something like this on the internet. A site contributed to by people of all different backgrounds from all over the world. We are human beings made in God's image to know him and to enjoy him. And we are calling out for something greater than ourselves. And so uh, we, we find this kind of a definition. But where, and whenever we imagine God to be other than he is, we practice idolatry. We can't commune with a spirit or deity that we believe in if he doesn't exist. And so we pray Uh, By God's grace, we have his word. We pray to the God we can know who has made himself known in his word, the one true and living God. So if this Wikipedia article were written on account of our prayers, let's say not what we believe about prayer or what the word says about prayer, but actually our personal prayers. This is a convicting question for me to ask myself. Uh, How would it read? How would it read? What are the kinds of things that I say in prayer? Who am I dressing? What am I thankful for and what do I want? As we consider the question of what do we want in prayer, that directs us to the second point. First, the basis for prayer is the gospel. We pray for the church because of the gospel. Secondly, we pray for the church to know the love of Christ. This is what we pray for all the time. Let's read verses 16 through 19 together. Paul prays to his father that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that was a prayer request. That is a big, big request. Excuse me. One sentence in the original language, and I think it's one sentence on our page as well. This is what Paul prays for when he prays for the church. Let's look at what it means. There's there's all three persons of the Trinity engaged here. Paul's praying to his Father. He prays for the fullness of God, for Christ to dwell in them richly, for them to know the love of Christ, for God's Spirit to strengthen them. So how how do we model our prayers after this? Well, at the center of this prayer is the request for these people and for us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, to have a knowledge of something that cannot be known, 
in part, we can know it here as those who know Christ, and we will know it perfectly one day when we meet him face to face. We behold him as he is, and we are conformed into his image perfectly. So the heart of this prayer is is the prayer for the knowledge of Christ, but there are two other little requests that are on both sides of it. First, a prayer that makes that possible, and on the other side, he he gives us a request that summarizes the whole thing. Let's look at the first request, the prayer that makes that kind of a thing possible. He prays in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul's prayer, the target of Paul's prayer is the heart, the inner being, the heart. And so we can pray certainly for and at the heart, and he prays for the spirit to strengthen them with power. That's where power comes from. This is how God deploys gospel power is through his spirit. He continues that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I would propose that those really aren't two different requests. We don't have both persons of the Trinity inside us, but we do. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of God that indwells believers that is sent to us when we place our faith in Christ is the Spirit of Christ. And when the Spirit indwells us, Christ indwells us. And when we're strengthened by the Spirit, Christ dwells in us richly through faith. I was in a wedding uh, this last month, back in June. And at a wedding, I was standing with a, with a buddy. And you meet his friends from different parts of his life. And you'll probably never see these people again. But you enjoy them and you share your friend in common. We make small talk and he's an officer a highway patrolman in Ohio. So I thought, what can I ask? What's the craziest thing that's happened to you in your job? I figured all kinds of crazy things have to happen in that line of work. Any line of work, but you know, I'm always looking for stories, so I thought that would be a good way to crack them open, make some small talk, and leave with a memory. Early when he was an officer, he got a call. There's a man running down the interstate, in and out of traffic like a car. Okay, so he shows up, he's trying to get to the man, and the man uh, starting in and out of traffic, and then lays down on the ground and curls up like a rock, and then gets up and runs. In and out of traffic, people are calling the, the police, there's guys on the road, it's nuts. Then he gets down on the ground like a rock again, turns around, looks at the officer, the scowl, almost like a villain in a superhero movie, and then runs again. It took seven officers to contain this man. He was all over the place, kicking. They they tased him to no effect. I've never been tased. I understand that that stops you. Uh, (laughs) For various reasons, there's even like physical cords, I guess, that come out and they wrapped around him and he was still seven officers, folks. Man was out of control. Apparently he was on PCP. They found that out later. They thought he's insane. That makes sense. Apparently... Uh, Being on this drug, he felt no pain. And so he acted like a superhero. They said he felt it the next day. Uh, Well, when our hearts are on the drugs of this age, we can't feel pain. You may know what it's like uh, in the closest of your relationships for things to be broken and for you to feel nothing, to be numb in your heart. Maybe you're just working all the time. And the demands of work are great. And you're being responsible and you're fulfilling them. But maybe you are just giving your heart too much to it so that it's become numb. 
and where there are problems in your own Christian life and your obedience to Christ, you don't have a heart to obey and you're really struggling here, but you're not even really struggling, you're just laying down. Um, The drugs of this world, the cares of this world, Jesus talks about in the parable of the soils, choke out the word. So we must pay attention to the inner being. And it's the issues of the heart that lead to the behavior outside that's observable by the world. And it was PCP and that drug that made this man crazy so that he felt no pain and had to be restrained. Remember when Jesus healed the demon-possessed man? He could not be restrained by anyone in the village. Chains could not restrain him. But Jesus healed him with power so that he was clothed, it says, and in his right mind. And they feared Jesus. That is a powerful man that can contain a man like that. And that same power raised Jesus from the dead, raised you from the dead, will raise you from the dead, and is at work in all of us who know Christ. Obeying the commands of the second half of the book are going to require spiritual power. So Paul prays between the first half and the second half of his letter for spiritual power in the inner being. There are lots of things we can do to try to get our life together. We cannot get our life together as a Christian in obedience to God without this, and so we should pray for it. It's part of the substance of his prayer. The second part of his prayer, which is at the heart of his prayer, is for the knowledge of the love of Christ. Let's read together. Verse 16, 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. To know something that surpasses knowledge. You could tell Paul here is with words doing everything he can do. Certainly the Spirit has inspired these to communicate this meaning, what this means. But remember, it is a prayer for an experience. Apparently, the whole first book, half of this book could be read and even be true of us. And we still need an answer to this prayer in our own hearts. Paul prays that that their hearts would experience that they would know in an experiential way all of the meaning of the first half of the book. So whenever we hear the word preached, we turn our hearts to prayer. Pray through a whole sermon. Go home and pray. Wake up in the morning. Read the scriptures. Pray. Pray, pray, pray. To know the love of Christ. It's where all of the doctrine of the gospel leads. So that's what he prays for. I'm an amateur photographer, and I just put the accent on amateur. Really, I just like to take pictures. I just keep doing it, so I guess that makes a person a photographer. When I was in high school, I had a photo album for, I think, every semester. I was a new Christian. I think I loved life. I took the camera with me, and I just shot up life. Didn't want to lose any of it. Loved my friends, loved the things that happened, and God was just being gracious to me to give me a happy heart, and I think that overflowed in a lot of pictures and now photo albums in my basement that uh, I never look at, and Christy, uh, they take up space. I keep things. She helps me throw them away. The photo albums will stay. (laughs) I went to Ireland and Scotland on a trip in college, and I remember coming back from that trip. I'd seen vistas and great lakes or lochs, uh, mountains, sheep, rolling hills, 
thousand-year-old rock fences. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Took a lot of pictures. And uh, had some relatives in town, and they offered to pay for the development of my photos, which was great. College student, takes too many pictures, probably 100 bucks or more back then, before we took them with digital cameras. I remember getting those photos and being honestly embarrassed about them. Like, I talked up the things that I had seen, and now I'm showing you this picture. Okay, this is what I saw, and this is the picture. It kept going up, and it kept going down and left, and in every direction, and I guess you had to be there. Well, Paul prays that this church, and that we would be there, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that is revealed to us in words, and that is known through words, that apparently cannot be quite expressed in words. And so he does this way. We think about when we sing together, that's a beautiful songs that we sang this morning. The pleasure to sing with you. Sweet to sing with the people of God. Think about the song, how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Memorize that verse. Pray that verse. Sing that verse. Print that song out. Keep it in the car. Keep it at your nightstand. Songs have a way of impressing the truth of God and the reality of Christ's love on their heart, don't they? When they're written well. Think of it, Colossians. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, what? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So as we sing together in a congregation, we think, what are we doing together? We are in singing, letting the, letting the word of Christ dwell richly in our hearts. And you can do it on your own, and we certainly should do it when we meet. Songs are meant for expression to God, but the best ones are also meant for impression. They're good at expression because they're helping your heart, they're impressing your heart with the glory of God and the gospel of Christ and the knowledge of Christ's love. And the songs we've sung have done that. I encourage you to sing and to use songs in prayer by a good old hymnal, even for your house. They're full of them. In this, Paul prays, in summary, the last part of his one request, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. He uses this later. He talks about unity of the body, building itself up in love and maturity and growing in maturity in Christ who is the head, to the measure and the stature and the fullness of the Son of God, the fullness. Fullness has to do with maturity. When you talk about somebody who is a godly person, you observe somebody's life, you say, that is a godly person. What do we mean except that they are filled with God? Filled with God. It's this nice language to describe maturity, a target for us, isn't it? It's not, they are done with their checklist. They are, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're filled with God. So he's praying for maturity. The knowledge of the love of Christ leads to maturity, which expresses itself in obedience to everything we find in the second half of the book. It's as though Paul is asking for heaven to come down. Prayer for power.
power from the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in you, so that you would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We're adopted as sons. We are his children. But remember what John writes in 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. We are new creations, and we're being made new every day. So this is a prayer that we can be regular in praying. And just in case this seems a bit impractical, I'll read a few verses from later on in the book. The summary of the book, second half, might be found in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. You don't have to turn there. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It would be difficult to walk in this kind of love, the kind of love that Christ had when he died for us without reflecting on it and meditating on it. So we're praying for it. Wives, in Ephesians 5, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Ephesians 5, 25, to husbands, a tall order. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. Our ability to obey these kinds of commands, and the half, that half of the book is full of them, rests on our heart's knowledge of the love of Christ. I understand there are people in our congregation here that work with planes. I think that's great. Um, I understand there are some people, uh, if you go on YouTube, there's this jet, the F-35. Does anyone know what the F-35 is? I grew up with Top Gun, and it goes like this. The F-35 can go like this. It is a cool plane. Planes are powerful, powerful things. Well, if you had a jet in your garage, it would be powerful. You would have a lot of power in your garage, but it would get boring with time without fuel. With fuel, you activate the jet to win a war, to fly the globe, to take off. And in the Christian life, prayer is like the jet fuel on the gospel. The gospel being the engine for our joy and our conformity to Christ. And when you pour jet fuel on it, pour the jet fuel of prayer on it, it takes off. You find that you have the power, because it's supernatural power, to honor God in obedience to commands. We can hear the gospel time and again and not believe until God's spirit works. This is a work of God. And, it's, and when we pray, we admit to God our dependence upon him to complete this work in us. So as we pray, as we struggle with sin and we wrestle to obey Christ in this world, let's specifically ask for help from the Spirit, power from the Spirit to know Christ's love so that we may be filled with the fullness of God and have strength to fight the sin of lust, of bitterness, of unforgiveness. Let's feast our hearts in prayer on the love of Christ If you are crushed by the sin of anger, 
Feast your heart out in prayer on the love of Christ, which drove him to the cross without a word when he had every just reason to be angry, for it was the universe's greatest injustice, but hung there sinless and silent for you. If you are crushed by the sin of pride, feast your heart out in prayer on the love of Christ, which drove him to the cradle from glory and from there to the cross. He humbled himself and became a man to the point of death and is now seated where? At God's right hand. That's where he is. Where should we be? Under God's wrath. But we're children of God through faith in him. That will squash pride. If you are crushed by the sin of perverted sexual desires, lust, want of an extramarital affair, an affair, homosexual desires, feast your heart out in prayer on the love of Christ who had perfect thoughts about every human being and through whom God purchased you so that you would glorify God in your body. Meditate on Christ. If you're struggling with loving your wife, feast your heart out in prayer on the love of Christ who gave himself up for you and who washes you with the word and nourishes and cherishes you. Struggling with theft, fudging numbers at work. Feast your heart out in prayer on the love of Christ who never stole from anyone, though he made it all, and who gives you what? Who gives to his children, or, or through whom God gives to his children, every, that is every, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're struggling with laziness, remember that Christ left heaven and, the, and his Father for 33 years for your sake. And of course, he's back there now. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. If you're struggling with obeying your parents, feast your heart out in prayer on the love of Christ, to whom both you and your parents will account. And God has given you your parents so that it may go well with you in this life. We will not be able to forgive unless we know the forgiving love of Christ. All of our obedience hangs on our heart's knowledge of just that the love of God for us in Christ. And so that's the substance of Paul's prayer. Now, last, the manner. Paul prays, and we should pray for the church, with great expectation. Let's read together, verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. We can pray with great expectation because we know precisely who we're praying to. This is the God who is able to do. It's not a deistic God who has made the world and taken off. He is able, he's all-powerful, he's able to do, he's engaged. Abundantly more than we ask or think. He knows everything that we're thinking, and he certainly knows everything that we need. And he does this according to what power? The power at work within us, the power that raised Jesus from the dead and healed that demon-possessed man. And he does it so that he would receive glory in his church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. He is committed to that purpose. His son came to earth for it. He is coming again for it. He has found all of us here for that purpose, and he will fulfill it, and so we can pray with great expectation as we pray. This week I um, met a FedEx postal worker, or FedEx uh, truck driver, 
he said people were running from their houses to his truck like they don't usually run to their houses from his truck for the iPhone. New iPhone came out. Everyone's waiting at the door. Truck's driving by and they're out, literally running because they have great expectation, both that Apple has made something great and that the FedEx delivery man will bring it. And so we can pray with great expectation as well. Paul explodes here. You just think about where this prayer falls in the letter. The end of the first half explodes in prayer. And at the end of his prayer, he explodes in doxology in praise to God. We have looked at the basis for our prayers as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've looked at the substance of this prayer for the church, which should be our prayer for the church, which is that we would know the love of Christ, the most important thing about a church. There are many things that make one church unique from another, but that one is grounded in the gospel and full of the knowledge of Christ is our chief request. And in the manner of his prayers with great expectation, because we know exactly who we're talking to, and we have boldness, and we have access, and we have confidence as we pray to him. Actually, it's the same, I'm connecting this dot now, it's the same uh, aunt and uncle who paid for the development of those photos about 10 years ago, visit Christy and I in our home every couple years in Louisville, and they ask us where we'd like to go out to eat. And we like Carabas. Uh, we, we enjoy Italian, so there are, there are more expensive places that we would like to go out to eat, but that we don't go out to eat. Um, but we said Carabas, so they take us there. And about a week after their visit, we receive a gift card in the mail, $100 to Carabas, and they say, enjoy. Uh, recently, we, they visited with us, with we have our children now. <clears throat> pizza Hut. $10 pizza. This is the new hangout. It's Carabas Pizza. They have $10 pizza. Get whatever you want. We can make noise. There's hardly anyone at this particular pizza hut at certain times of night. And so we go there and have a great time. And that's the new hangout. We took them there. We get a gift card in the mail for Pizza Hut. Well, if that were just to sit on the shelf... It would betray what I believe about that card, wouldn't it? Maybe I don't think it's worth anything, or I don't really, it's worth a meal, but I don't really have a taste for that meal. In prayer, what we're doing, and what Paul's doing here, and what we can all do by God's grace, is cash that in. It's a ticket to a delightful meal with one we love. And I've spent much of the Carabas gift card already, if not the whole thing, and we're working on the Pizza Hut one. May God find all of us faithful in praying to enjoy the glories of the gospel in Christ as we pray for the church to know the incomparable love of Christ.